want the central uh, theme of this message today to be about hope. Michael kind of introduced that idea. Um, I want that to kind of shine through. This is basically a message from chapter three of my book. It's called After the Election. Um, and uh, it's just kind of boiled down into, the, chapter three is my favorite chapter. And so I thought, uh, I gave a message on politics a few months ago, and this is kind of the follow-up message. The first one was about who are we as a church and what is our relationship to any kind of political structure, right? Um, whether we're in a democracy or a totalitarian state, what is our role? Uh, this is kind of the follow-up message and a little bit more uh, localized in our context is for us in this time and in this place, how do we as followers of Jesus act in the public space? And um, it's a challenge right now. And so what I want to say is we need to find our hope in Christ so that we can be the hope that the future of democracy needs. Let me say that one more time. We need to find our hope in Christ for those of us that are here in this room so that we can be the hope that the future of democracy needs. For Christians, hope is a cardinal virtue. It's one of the big three virtues. You'll see it come up on the uh, screen, but it's deeply connected to our faith in Christ. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And 1 Corinthians 13, 13 gives us the big three. You might know this chapter as the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul keeps going, going on and on, and this is his conclusion. And now faith, hope, and love remain. These three. And the greatest of these is love. You need faith, you need hope, because we're born in the middle of this world. We haven't seen everything in the past and we don't see everything in the future, but we have our anchor in Jesus Christ. And so we place our faith in Christ. We need faith now because we don't see God fully. And we place our hope in Christ because we don't know the future fully. But the greatest of these is love because the scriptures say God is love. God exists in a trini trinity and by his very nature, he is love. So faith, when uh, God establishes everything that he wants to do in this world, there won't be a need for faith because you'll see God face to face. When God does everything that he wants to do with the future of this world, you won't need hope because you'll see everything redeemed. But you will still need love. That's why the greatest of these is love. And that's the sermon worth its own. But um, we'll talk about hope tonight, okay? And I want to talk about Christian hope in our current political climate, right? Sometimes to think about the political conversation right now is just exhausting, uh, honestly. There is a low grade or sometimes even a high grade fatigue to the pressure to think about the appropriate response to uh, someone's tweet or to what we see on Sunday morning television. What to share, there's a fatigue about what to share about our own views um, and how to have conversa conversations with our friends and our family, people that might agree with us or might disagree with us, but we don't talk about it uh, because we're just worried that they 
might disagree. And what will that do with our relationship? Here's a quote from my wife as we were talking about this message. We were talking about it last night. And she's, she said to me, who wants to talk about politics anymore? It's just a dismal subject. And I said, who uses dismal anymore? Um, so why even bring this topic up? Well, because I wrote a book about it, huh? Right? And I need to sell some books so you can buy some at the back. Um, but more importantly, I wrote the book. Because I think that as followers of Jesus, there's supposed to be something unique that marks our life, especially in the public space, and that something unique is hope. This message doesn't assume a political position. It's not Democrat or Republican. It's not progressive or conservative. It's not electoral or legislative. There's important messages that can be uh, said about those. It's not who to vote for and what to vote for in the upcoming fall election but it's a message about finding hope and navigating through our political climate at this time. So let me begin by saying, here's a sentence for you, and I'm, then I'm going to unpack it, okay? The hope for democracy is for us, us in this room that call ourselves Christians or the church, to recover the distinctiveness of what it means to be a community that uh, is faithful to following Jesus. I said a lot in that sentence. Uh, that's what professors do. We like to do those things. Uh, let me just add some texture. What do I mean by hope? 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give a reason for anyone who demands an account for the hope that is within you. There is an assumption in this passage that your hope will stand out in a way that gets some kind of attention and notice. Christians are supposed to be known for their radical and unrelenting hope. Now, if you went, I think I've used this illustration before, but if you went outside family feud style and interviewed 100 people and said, what do you think about Christians? Like, name the top four characteristics. Do you think hope would be one of those four? Right? Okay, so that's what I mean by hope, a radical, unrelenting hope. A second, democracy. Democracy is just a political system that helps us organize people into social cooperation. There's tons of political systems that help people organize, um, organize people into social cooperation. Uh, you can ha and we need to do this, right? A totalitarian state um, just says we all need to be homogeneous and uh, follow this one person or this group of people, what they say and what they do, and that will create social peace. A democracy, on the other hand, says let's bring all the diversity into the public conversation. And people will have a voice, we'll try to discern what's the best for the, uh, the best good for the most people, and we'll go with that. And despite its weaknesses, I think it's the best way to accommodate our ever-increasing plurality. Um, so uh, that's democracy. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Distinctiveness. This means set apart. Tatiana said, um, talked about God being holy. That's what it means. God being holy as God is uniquely distinct. He's set apart. He's something else. God is something other than us. And so when I say that the church needs to be distinct, it needs to be distinct from culture in some places. Community. That it starts with you. It starts with you as an individual, but it doesn't end with you, right? That others need you, and you need others to get a full picture of who Jesus is and what it means to live as followers of Jesus. 
So it's never you alone. It's a community. Faithful. There are boundaries around this community. Boundaries of belief and practice that define our identity. And then following Jesus, which is the most important, Jesus is our orienting center to our faithfulness. Our faithfulness is not to an idea or a religion or a law or a political system. Our faithfulness is to a person. And our hope is anchored in that person, Jesus Christ. Okay, so just to unpack that sentence, and then here we go. If hope is a cardinal Christian virtue, and the democratic tradition is the water that we swim in to organize socially, then how do we have this kind of radical and unrelenting hope? Especially when things in democracy don't always go our way. The things that we think are good, the things that we want to see happen, uh, don't happen. Somebody else gets elected. Somebody else puts a policy in place that we don't agree with. How do we, or even the culture, gets so combative sometimes. So how do we um, find hope in this context as uh, followers of Christ? <laughs> the first thing is set your expectations right. Um, this is just a principle. Uh, politics is not the kingdom of God. It is important, but not ultimate. Most of the time, the key to happiness is when your reality matches or exceeds your expectations. The key to unhappiness is when you have high expectations and the reality doesn't match it. It's like if you went to a movie, right? And you had great high expectations and it just didn't match. And so, uh, so you're disappointed. But if you have really low expectations of a movie, like say the movie Strange Brew, um, which is my favorite, one of my favorite comedies. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> eh? um, okay, so that's an internal joke. Um, if you have low expectations of a movie, you go in and it's better than what you think it was, then you're happy, right? This is the key to happiness is just to have reality match your expectations or exceed your expectations. Um, so we need to set our expectations about uh, government. The first thing is we need to understand that our government is somewhere between doing good and being oppressive. It's somewhere on that scale, right? But it's never always doing good. And it's never always oppressive. It's somewhere in the middle. And then for democracies specifically, they're contingent, imperfect, and based on compromise. So you're never going to get the full ideal of your moral vision for the good life in a democracy because you're going to have to compromise somewhere to get something done, right? So uh, that's the first thing. Set your expectations about dem what democracy is. It isn't the kingdom of God. You're not going to get everything that you want. Um, secondly, democracy, and this is kind of the key point that I want to say, democracy is a kind of political system that needs support from outside of itself. It doesn't have the virtues necessary to carry itself forward. And I'll try to explain what I mean by that. But if it's left alone just to itself, it can collapse in on itself. It needs a compliment, not a compliment with an I, your great political system, but a compliment with an E. It needs something beside it supporting it. Okay? Because of its strength, it has several weaknesses that uh, I want to argue Christianity 
is strong precisely where democracy is weak, and that is the hope for democracy. If we can recover our faithfulness as a people following Christ, we can actually contribute to the health of a democracy, okay, and the, to the health of ours. Um, so I'll hi highlight a couple of weaknesses, and you can see the full-blown academic version in my book in chapter 3, right, um, of these weaknesses and how Christianity complements them. So here's a couple. Uh, democracy always marginalizes people. Some group will always be marginalized because a utilitarian calculation of the good, the, the, most, uh, the best good for the most people always pushes someone to the margins, right? It always marginalizes because majority rules. If you're not in the majority, you're on the margins. Uh, second thing, uh, weakness in democracy. The, dem the more diverse we get, the more difficult it becomes to find common moral language and common moral assumptions to settle our differences. So we all have different pictures of what the good life is. We all want to legislate them. And democracy invites us into the conversation, but it doesn't have a mechanism except for law and politics to decide who is right. Right? It doesn't have common moral language. And it c doesn't have common moral frameworks when we're inviting all these people into the conversation. That's a good thing to invite everybody into the conversation. It's a difficult thing when we don't have a common moral framework to help decide which is good and which is, uh, which is wrong, which is right. James Hunter, who wrote the book To Change the World, says this, that diversity and cultural consensus have an inverse relationship. As diversity goes up, cultural consensus goes down. And when cultural consensus goes down, the emphasis becomes on law and politics to settle our differences. Consequently, when the emphasis becomes on law and politics, what we do is we devolve into power struggles in order to control the realm of law and politics. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. Uh, if some of you are in the dark, you know, just I'm, I'm assuming you're nodding your head. Okay. Um, the third challenge of democracy or the third weakness is democracy can create a tyranny of the majority the majority is not always right uh, we have several examples in our in our short american history where uh, the, the majority has not been right eugenics is a great example of that um, that i won't say much more about that because we all kind of know that um, that the majority can be wrong so i don't want to overstate it but I'll say it like this. If we can recover a faithful understanding of Christ, then our hope for democracy starts here, in this place, right here, with you all. Finding uh, a faithfulness to Christ. And let me show you how I think that uh, Christianity complements democracy. Okay, first of all, Christianity brings the marginalized into full moral view. So democracy is always marginalized, Christians were always supposed to be the ones that looked to the margins. They're all supposed to be the ones that drew the margins in. We, we inherited this from Judaism, right? The poor, the widow, the orphan, the prisoner. The, those were the people that we were to take care of. And in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, gathers everybody and he gives a picture of the judgment day, he says, you'll be judged on whether you fed the poor, whether you fed the poor, whether you visited, healed the sick, visited the prisoner. And they asked, well, when did we do this? And Jesus said, whenever you did it to the least of these, people on the margins, you did it to me. 
welcome in, right? Christianity, Jesus always pushes our boundaries of moral concern outward to the point where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're supposed to love your enemies. Their traditional teaching was love your friends, hate your enemies. But Jesus says, now I, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for them. Jesus is consistently pushing our moral boundaries outward. We have, we have concerns. I love my family. It's Mother's Day. We had a great time together. But that's not my only moral concern. Jesus is consistently pushing me outwards towards the margins to welcome people on the margins in. That's why Christianity is a compliment to, to democracy. Second, Christianity is absolutist and idealistic in the best possible way. So democracy depends on social consensus. Christianity has a moral framework that's outside of social consensus. And in the best, when it's doing its best job, um, Christianity is supposed to have a prophetic role to the government. The great English cricket player and missionary C.T. Studd described his wife like this. She's a red-hot poker in my soul. This is what the church was always supposed to be to the government that we find ourselves in. We're always supposed to be the red-hot poker to its soul because social consensus will go this way, and you can be a poker, right? You can poke somebody and say, that was really good. You did a really good job. But you can also poke somebody and say, I think you got it wrong there, right? And when we poke for good, which we should be doing and we should part be participating when the government does good, uh, when we do that, they say great. But when we poke and say, no, that's not quite right, then who knows what will happen? It's not always great. They don't always appreciate us for saying that. So it's not always popular to be the poker. Um, absolutes and ideals create a certain kind of moral staying power, too. Um, Social consensus comes and goes. You can just look at our Supreme Court laws throughout history, and you'll see social consensus comes and goes. But we're supposed to be to persevere despite whatever circumstances in our moral vision. The great example is William Wilberforce in England. When he started uh, advocating against slavery, it was 1789. When the abolition of slavery finally happened, it was 1833. That's 40 years of work, of consistent staying power um, for his vision of the abolition of slavery. Okay, third, and I kind of have to speed it up here. Christianity has a different view of power. In democracies, you get the power so you can legislate the good. In Christianity, you use your power so that you can serve the good. Mark chapter 10 says it's... James and John arguing who's going to be the most powerful in the kingdom of God. And the disciples are mad at them because they should have asked them first, right? Ask Jesus first. And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. You're still thinking in worldly terms. That's what the Gentiles do with their power. They lord it over people. What we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus as my disciples is you're supposed to serve because that's what Jesus did. He came to, not to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. Fourth, Christianity is uncompromising in doing good. We can continue to work for the flourishing of everyone 
even in the most difficult circumstances. I'm going to put Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7 on the board and let you read it while I kind of talk about, uh, talk through this. But this is the Israelites in Babylon. They don't have any, it's a very difficult circumstance. They've just been conquered. Jerusalem has been wiped out. The temple has been destroyed. They don't have everything they need for their religious life. They don't have their land. Um, some have been separated from their family and they're in a foreign country and they're asking, what do we do? And Jeremiah, th through, the Lord says through Jeremiah, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to live there. You're supposed to pray for the city and you're supposed to work towards its flourishing. Seek the welfare of the city because if the city flourishes, you flourish. So we're supposed to live, pray, and work in doing good. So we do to, uh, good together in community, and we do good despite our circumstances. It doesn't matter if things are going well for us or if things are going horrible for us. If we're being celebrated or persecuted, we still continue to do good. And then we do create good creatively. If you read the scriptures and you're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in the, next, in the upcoming weeks, every time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the scriptures, something creative happens. Finally, we do good because of love. We love because God first loved us. This is a place for hope in the future. I want to I point us to Peter and then just wrap up with a quick practical application. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.17, It's better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for the sins once for all. Peter here brings our hope back to Christ. He says, keep doing good, even if you're suffering, because this is what Christ did. And when the New Testament talks about hope, it's usually anchored in the person of Christ and the resurrection. Right? Peter is writing this, and this is the same Peter who, at the trial of Jesus, denied Jesus. This is the same Peter who, after the crucifixion, went back to fishing. Right? That's what we do in Montana when we lose hope. We just go fishing. Uh, actually, we just go fishing anytime. Um, what happened to Peter that he could write this? He encountered the resurrected Christ. That's why this place is a hope for the future, because this is a place where you encounter the resurrected Christ. This is a place where you remind each other that our moral boundaries point outward. This is a place where you remind each other to stay, to keep doing good, to keep up the good work, to uh, be encouraged, to strengthen your faith, and then you go out, right? Okay, so practical application. Really quickly, your Christian faith is necessary and important for this place, for Silicon Valley. Sometimes it's difficult to be a Christian here. I don't know if you all watched the movie, or uh, the show Silicon Valley, but they had an episode about this, right? It's called uh, Tech Evangelist. Guilfoyle tells Richard, if you've seen this, that Christianity freaks people out in the valley, right? So you, f you have to be intentional to nourish your own faith here. But come together to help strengthen one another's faith. So you have to nourish your own faith, but you have to come together to strengthen each other's faith. Um, secondly, we have to do some work to know what things to stand for and what things to not stand for. I said Christianity at its best is absolutist and idealist. We've taken some absolutes and ideals and we've gotten them wrong in the past. 
So how do we get that right? That our moral staying power is on the right things. That's where we need a community of discernment. And what I would love to see um, sometime is for somebody who's an expert in political science, international relations, expert in the, in the Bible, understands the Bible, and uh, somebody who has gifts of mercy, come together in this little small group and take the electoral things that we get about all the propositions and all the people and say, we're going to try to discern. Where does this match the kingdom of God? And we're going to try to help our community do this. That's one, one thing that we need to do is we need to uh, understand where do we take our stand and where do we don't? Okay, finally, we have to recover our creative and entrepreneurial spirit. I don't have to tell you this because you live in Silicon Valley. Some of the most creative people in the world here. The government won't solve our most wicked problems. Right? We should be the first ones jumping in. Like we have a community of discernment with all these people, uh, political scientists, international relations, we need some folks that are going to business school, that are in finance, that, uh, that understand startups, and we need you all to get together and to try some stuff. Say, here's a problem. We're going to go after this, right? There's a problem with plastics in the world. Uh, what if Christians from Sanctuary came up with a, with, a pro- with a solution to that problem? Because you all decided to just try something, right? You got together and said, yeah, I, I might have some skills here. We need to start some social entrepreneurship businesses, and we need to start some nonprofits to begin to take care of some of these things on the margin. Some of the places where the government just won't address and some of the places where the government is weak in caring for others. Okay, let me close with a little uh, word from Paul in prayer. Here's Paul, hope in difficult circumstances, Romans chapter 5. He says this, Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Paul points us outside of our circumstances to the person of Christ to anchor our hope. Not so we can be hopeful, but so that we, I mean, that's important, so we can be hopeful, but also so that we can serve and help the community flourish. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here. We want to find our hope in Christ. Sometimes our circumstances are just overwhelming. I ask that you would take these things and you would just mold them into our hearts, the things that are true, the things that are not quite true or I've exaggerated on accident, that you would uh, take those and just let them float away. Lord, help us to be people who are confident in you and serving others, to anchor our hope in you. And thank you for your presence with us, that you are holy, but as Tatiana said, you are with us. You entered in with us into this world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.